This podcast is sponsored by The Christian Way of Life, the new book from Eric Alexander and Alliance Publishing. Find it online at reformedresources.org. What is the Christian way of life, and how can we live it? Some may reply with a list of do's and don'ts, but we need far more than a lecture. We need a Savior. In his new book, The Christian Way of Life, Eric Alexander leads readers down the radiant corridors of Romans 12 through 15, showing how the gospel of redeeming grace empowers us for holy and acceptable service to God. There is no secret in Christian living in a wasting world, only a simple truth. It is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Alliance Publishing is excited to share this new book book with you. Order your copies directly from the Alliance's online resource center, reformedresources.org. That's reformedresources.org. Also available on Amazon in paperback and ebook. Order your copy today. The seaport city of Corinth was known for its commerce, its cosmopolitan nature, and its corruption. In fact, to be known as a Corinthian was often a sign of one who ascribes to the most perverse forms of lifestyle and behavior. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. The Apostle Paul entered the city of Corinth alone and discouraged. Out of money, he resorted to his trade to earn a living. Paul found few who were open to the gospel, but God intervened, and his ministry began to bear fruit in the hearts of those God prepared to receive the message of salvation. Join Dr. Boyce as he draws our attention to God's encouragement in the face of man's discouragement as we learn about Paul's ministry in the city of Corinth. We're tracing the ministry of the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey, and we've seen as we've begun to look at this in detail in these latter chapters of Acts that it was becoming increasingly a ministry to cities. This was not entirely true at the beginning. Paul is described as having moved through areas of the country, presumably speaking to anyone. But as time went on and the task that he was engaged upon loomed increasingly large and important in his mind, he decided, it would seem, to focus on the strategic areas. And so about the middle of this second journey on throughout the third and indeed throughout the rest of his life it would seem that Paul spent most of his time in the great cities of the Greco-Roman world. Now, we've seen some of them. In the last chapter we saw his ministry in Athens. Today in the 18th chapter of Acts we find him working in the great Greek town of Corinth. Corinth was not like Athens. Matter of fact, it was quite different from almost any other city he had visited. I want to give you three words that will help you to remember what Corinth was like, and because Corinth begins with the letter C, each of these three words also begin with the letter C. First of all, it was cosmopolitan. That means it contained a mixture of many people and races. This was not entirely true of all the other cities, though, of course, in the Roman world of that day, there was a mixture. Everywhere you went, there were Romans and Greeks, there were Jews in virtually all of the cities Paul visited, and no doubt there were traders from the Orient and other people as well. There was great commerce with North Africa, but they tended more or less 
to be the same. It's not quite true of Antioch and Syria, from which he started out. That was an amazingly cosmopolitan city. But Philippi was a Roman colony. It had been settled by retired Roman soldiers. And some of the other cities bore their own more or less unique configurations. Athens was more or less the center of the intellectuals. It tended to be the same. Not Corinth. Corinth had this tremendous mixture because, of course, it was a seaport and there was much commerce. And as a result of that, people came and went from all over the Roman world. I like Corinth in that respect because it's a lot like the cities we know. Our cities have great mixtures of people, mixtures of races, people from around the world studying in our major cities, people of various races, each trying to do their own thing, people of different intellectual abilities, people from different classes of society. So Corinth was cosmopolitan and was like our cities in that regard. Secondly, it was also commercial which I've just alluded to. It was uniquely commercial. Every city has its commercial aspects, of course, or it wouldn't be a city. Generally, cities are there because they're at a focal point for the exchange of goods. But Corinth was uniquely this. It was situated on the isthmus between the main part of Greece and the Peloponnese in the south. And it was a narrow isthmus, and that meant that traffic crossed Corinth in two different directions. It crossed Corinth from north to south along the land, that is from the Peloponnese up into the mainland and down in reverse, but it also crossed Corinth east to west across the isthmus. We look at it today and we would say, well, that would be a difficult way to ship goods. It would be far easier to ship them around the Peloponnese to the south. Yes, but that's because we have modern boats and modern means of transportation. In ancient times, that wasn't quite so easy. Sea voyages were hazardous. And therefore, it was quite common for ships to dock at a port on the Adriatic Sea and then unload. Slaves would carry the goods up over the isthmus, down the other side, where they would be relocated on other ships and sail on into the Aegean. In ancient times, it was even an attempt to cut a canal across the isthmus. It wasn't successful. They tried it in Nero's time, and eventually they gave up. It was only in the last century that the canal was built through the isthmus by Corinth. It's there today. I sailed through it once on a ship. But nevertheless, the same things that make Corinth a port today and a, and a center of commerce were true in the ancient world. So this great city was cosmopolitan and commercial. And thirdly, this is the third C, corrupt. That is morally corrupt. And everybody knew it. In the ancient world, the word Corinthian, was a synonym with the most perverse form of behavior. It was the center of the great cult of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the same goddess as Venus, the goddess of love. And it was said by the ancients that at the great temple of Aphrodite in Corinth, one of the architectural wonders of the ancient world, there were at the temple or in close connection with it 10,000 temple prostitutes who would service all of the sailors and other commercial personages that passed through the town. If you were called a Corinthian in the ancient world and were not actually from Corinth, you regarded that particular appellation as an insult. Now that's the city to which 
Paul next came, a city like our cities. I wonder, as I begin to read this chapter, what Paul's frame of mind was as he came alone to Corinth at this stage of his second missionary journey. I ask myself whether Paul, great man of God as he was, great tower of strength and faith as he is seen to be in his journeys, if this great man was nevertheless discouraged. And when I ask myself that question, I tend to think he was. Not a great deal is said about it, but I think as I look at what happened and the way in which he operated when he got here to Corinth, that he probably was a very discouraged or at least tired and very fatigued man. Think of the things he had been through, the experience he had had even before he got there. First of all, he'd had a very rough time, both on the first and second missionary journeys. He had been opposed virtually everywhere he went. And indeed, the opposition seemed to be increasing. The very beginning, when he started out and crossed Cyprus, we're merely told that he passed through the island. We're told a few of the incidences. There's no real mention there of any special persecution of Paul. But when he crossed over into Pamphylia and came to Antioch in Pisidia, we're told that there he was opposed so strongly that he had to leave the city after only being there a very short time. And when he got to Iconium, the same thing was true. He was opposed there as well. Time he went on to Lystra, and here the opposition that had dogged his footsteps earlier became outright physical abuse. He was stoned at Lystra. I suppose because stoning was meant to kill the victim of the stoning that those who saw Paul fall down under the barrage of missiles must have thought that the missionary journey was over and Paul was dead. All we're told in the accounts is that after his assailants had left and gone back into the city, Paul rose up and then went back in with the brethren himself. It may suggest that God healed Paul miraculously, though it doesn't say that explicitly. But at any rate, there he suffered physical abuse. And then we know on the second journey, he went on to Philippi, and there he was beaten, flogged, the first of several experiences of that particularly cruel form of Roman punishment. He was thrown into prison. The first time he was imprisoned for the faith. And it was out of that kind of experience as he had passed from Philippi down through Thessalonica and Berea and Athens that he finally came to Corinth. I'm sure Paul didn't say this, but if you and I had been through that experience, we might have said, as we tend to say when things go badly for us today, who needs this? I had a perfectly good life back home in Jerusalem. There I was somebody. I have turned my back on that to serve Jesus Christ. And he has said to me, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And yet here I am abused, hounded from city to city, stoned, beaten, and imprisoned. I can do without this thank you all very much. As I say, I'm sure Paul didn't say it. I'm sure he didn't even think it. But knowing human nature as I do, I believe this undoubtedly had its effect upon him personally. And then secondly, he had just come from Athens. Now we studied the account of his time in Athens. And I said, we have to be very careful how we evaluate it. Certainly the sermon, or to be more precise, the academic address that Paul gave there before the Areopagus is a marvel of communication in the ancient world. He chose 
his mind at work. It shows his ability to adapt to nearly any situation. When he spoke to Jews, he spoke as a Jew. When he spoke to Greeks, he spoke as a Greek. When he spoke to intellectuals, he spoke as an intellectual. Only somebody of Paul's great training ability and acumen could do it. And yet the results were meager, weren't they? When we come to the end of the story, we find that a few believed. It says a few men became followers of Paul and believed. One was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, an important man. But when it goes on to name others, it says also a woman named Damaris. It doesn't even say, as Paul has said on other occasions, very distinguished women, just a woman, Damaris, and a number of others. And nothing is said about the founding of a church in Athens. We know that in time a church was founded. It endured for many years. But when Paul left and went on to Corinth, as we find him doing in this 18th chapter, it must have been with a sense, at least if not a failure, perhaps with an awareness that what he had just done had certainly not borne any particular evidence of the sovereign blessing of Almighty God. I think, too, that he may possibly have been discouraged with his address on that occasion. As I say, we have to be careful when we say that, but we do remember that when he came later to write to the Corinthians and described in retrospect his ministry among them, he said, remember that when I was with you, I was not with you with learning or wisdom or in the power of speech, that is, all the forms of rhetoric that were so common among the Greeks, the kind of things that people would throng to hear, though we have to understand him to imply, I am quite capable of doing that if I should choose, but rather he said, when I was with you, I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. We find the same sort of thing here in chapter 18, and I'm sure it emphasizes the identical point. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. That is, to the explanation and the application of the Word of God. So I say as he came to Corinth and looked back on his experiences, he would have had some grounds for discouragement. Then again, he was alone. He had left Silas and Timothy behind in Macedonia, and with very good reason. He had founded churches there. They needed leaders. He had had to leave. He hadn't been able to teach them for very long. Obviously, they needed teaching. That's what Silas and Timothy were for. They were the leaders. But nevertheless, having left them, having gone on, as he felt called to do, Paul did go on alone. Some people apparently do well alone, and we call them loners. You know, it's hard to be alone, especially hard to be alone if you're trying to accomplish some important work or tackle some particularly difficult assignment. Here was Paul, by the grace of God and in the power of God, but nevertheless, here was Paul trying to convert the Greek and Roman world. And he was one man at this stage. I, I suppose he must have been just a bit down about that. And then I think, too, it was not only the experiences that he had had before he came to Corinth that must have weighed upon him, but there were also the experiences he had once he was there. We learn an awful lot about Paul's experiences at this point if we read this chapter carefully. The first thing we're told about right after 
The first verse where we're told that he went there was that he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, and that he teamed up with them because they were tent makers. And he stayed with them and he worked with them, that is, helping them in their business, no doubt, in order to support himself for the Corinthian work. Now think about that. That's a common idea with us today. As a matter of fact, in evangelical circles and in missionary circles, you hear very often today the word tent maker. I mean, somebody who goes abroad to be a missionary, but who supports himself or herself in the missionary work, not by receiving money from home by those who give to support the work abroad, but by working in the economy of the country and then, as it were, witnessing or doing the missionary work on the side. Although this is a very common idea with us, this is the first time, so far as we can tell, in the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, where he had found it necessary to support himself by his profession, the profession of making tents. You say, well, how did he manage up till now? Well, no doubt those who sent him out gave him sufficient supplies of money. He was sent out from Antioch in Syria, and that church in that prosperous city in the ancient world undoubtedly gave him the means to travel on his journey. We know because he writes about it in his letters that from time to time the churches that he founded and which he later visited also supported him. But here, when he gets to Corinth, apparently his money had run out. I say apparently, but it's really not in doubt because in the second of his letters to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, he alludes to this period of financial material want when he was in Corinth. Now, he's not complaining about it in 2 Corinthians. As a matter of fact, he's making a point. He says to the Corinthians, you know that when I was there, even though I had physical wants, I didn't make myself a burden upon you. Rather, I worked with my hands, and also I was helped by gifts that came to me through the brethren who came south from Macedonia. But you see, even though he's talking about it positively, in an indirect way, he indicates that there was a period here when he arrived in Corinth that he didn't have sufficient funds. Oh, there are lots of Christian works like that today. I would go so far as to say the best Christian works today seem to be lacking funds. I, I often say, I, I sometimes say it humorously, except I don't think it's very funny, that when I get to heaven, that's going to be the first question I'm going to ask the Lord Jesus Christ. I know he's going to line up for a question and answer period, and we're all going to be able to come and ask him the things that have been on our minds and that have puzzled us in this Christian life. And I am not going to say, I want it established in the record, I am not going to say, what is your view concerning eschatology? That certainly divided the church. And I'm not going to say to the Lord Jesus Christ, what is the proper mode of baptism? Though well, that has certainly divided the church. I'm going to say, Lord, why is it that when we were trying to do your work, so many good, solid, struggling evangelical works almost operated hand to mouth so far as financial provision was concerned, while others, others that offer the chaff of religion if indeed it's even proper to call it by that name. Hucksters seem to rake in millions of dollars 
which they used quite lavishly and sinfully on themselves and their pleasures. I don't know what he's going to say to that. That's why I'm going to ask the question. I don't know what the answer to that question is, but I do know that the Apostle Paul, this first great missionary, this apostle, this great, great man, man of faith, man who knew how to pray, was at least for a time here at Corinth in financial need. And so he had to go to work in order to feed himself and carry on the ministry. Well, that might have been discouraging. We read on that he went into the synagogue, and we find when we read that, that he had very little success there. It's true, verse 9, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, but, next verse, the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, so much so that the time came when he actually shook out his clothes in a gesture of protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now think of that and its effect upon Paul. Paul's policy had been to go, first of all, to the synagogues. Paul had articulated that principle of his missionary work to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Moreover, Paul was addressing his own people, those for whom he had a special heart concern. And yet, in spite of his prayers, in spite of his ministry, in spite of his knowledge of the Scriptures, very, very few believed. Perhaps at this point, none at all. And then, not only did he fail to have success, that would have been bad enough, but in place of the success he sought, he actually got abuse from his people. If Paul had an excuse earlier to say, I have had quite enough of this, I'm going home, certainly he had an excuse to say that now. Paul could have said, look, not only am I rejected by my people, not only do they turn away from Christ, they are even abusive to me. I've seen it before, and here it is. It's starting all over again. Now they're abusive. The next thing they're going to do is stir up the populace against me, and then I'll be hauled into court, and pretty soon they'll have me thrown into jail, beaten. I've been through that at Philippi. I don't need to go through that again. I'm going to quit. And his fears were not idle fears because the latter half of the story tells us that that's precisely what his opponents in the synagogue tried to do. I hope I have showed that Paul had ample cause to be discouraged, no doubt was, just as we have causes to be discouraged and no doubt are. But now comes the good news. God intervened, and God intervened to encourage the apostle. I want you to think of the things that God did. First of all, God saw that Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia. You see, one of the things that had undoubtedly made it difficult for Paul is that Paul was alone. He was trying to carry on alone. He had tried to carry on alone in Athens. Now he was down in Corinth. He was trying to carry on alone in Corinth. And that just gets to you after a while. Sometimes we think, oh, I can do it. I can carry on alone. But of course we can't carry on alone. We need one another. That's why God has established the church. That's why God has established a plurality of leadership in the church. So one doesn't do it. It's supposed to be a team effort. And God knew that, of course. And although 
for perfectly good reasons, Paul had gone on and begun the missionary work in Corinth. He did need help, and so God saw to it that Silas and Timothy came. Now think of that when you see somebody who seems to be doing a good work, but who perhaps is carrying on without a great deal of encouragement. Just remember that we need one another and do what you can to encourage or help that kind of a Christian man or woman. There is a sense in which anything that is worth doing, if it's done by somebody, is done in a way that makes it a lonely position for the one who is leading in the work. And so I encourage you as Christians to seek out people who are trying to do that. Get beside them, help them, encourage them, speak a word in season, because they know, and we all need to know, that we need one another. And then there's a second thing, and that's what I alluded to earlier. One of Paul's problems was that he had financial needs. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, they brought help financial help from the Macedonian churches. It's what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, when the brethren came from Macedonia, who were they? Well, they were Silas and Timothy. He doesn't mention it there, but it's here in the story. That means that the church at Philippi and the church at Thessalonica and perhaps the church at Berea said, now Paul's out there on his own. I wonder how he's getting on. He's a great preacher. He needs to have time to preach, but if he doesn't have enough money to live on, if he can't even buy food in order to feed himself. He's going to have to go to work, and if he has to go to work, well, that's perfectly good. Work is good, but you see, that takes time away from the preaching. We would rather he was preaching. Here, let's take a collection, and Silas and Timothy, when you go down there and find Paul, you take it and see if this might not release him to do the work for which we believe God has particularly called him. And so they did. I think, actually, that that's the way verse 9 should be taken. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Why? Because now he no longer had to work. I don't want to imply by that that preaching isn't work. It's the hardest work you do in the pastorate. You're always more tired after a half hour, 45 minutes, or an hour of preaching than in any other corresponding two, three, or four hours in the day. It's work, but not the same kind. Here, their financial help released him to do what he was particularly called upon to do. Then thirdly, although he had not had great success through his preaching in the synagogue, God began to give him some fruit for his efforts. We're told in verse 8 about this man Crispus. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. So here was a Jew, you see. Not a Jewish name, but he was a Jew because he was the ruler of the synagogue, the leader of the synagogue, and this man believed. And we're told in the same verse, yes, and many of the Corinthians who heard him also believed and were baptized. So it had been a slow start. It had been a discouraging commencement. But now you see the Word of God was beginning to take effect. The Holy Spirit was blessing. And men and women, one here, two there, other one here, we're beginning to place their faith in Jesus. And then there's this fourth thing that God did. First of all, he had sent Silas and Timothy. Second, there was financial aid. Third, there was the beginning of response from Crispus and the other people there, the Corinthians in the city. The fourth thing is that God came to Paul in this great vision. 
And the vision was meant to encourage him by telling him to carry on in the work because God stood behind it and there would most certainly be blessing. I think each one of the things God says deserves attention. And perhaps as you think about it, you can fill in the support material yourself. First of all, God said, don't be afraid, Paul. We say, Paul? Afraid? Was Paul afraid? Paul, the one who stood up to the stoning? Paul, who allowed himself to be beaten? In Philippi, Paul, who sang songs of praise to God while in the stocks in the prison? Paul, afraid? Well, yes, afraid. He must have been afraid because God doesn't waste words. And if God came to Paul and said, Paul, don't be afraid, it must be because Paul was afraid. You don't say to somebody, don't be discouraged unless you think they're discouraged. You don't say to somebody, don't give up unless you think they're going to give up. And just in that same manner, you don't say to someone, don't be afraid unless you know that they really are afraid. So Paul was afraid. He was afraid because of the hostility and what might happen. God said, don't be. Second, God said, keep on speaking. Keep on speaking? We say to Paul, why? That's what Paul did. That was his calling. How could Paul do anything else but keep on speaking? I don't know, but it might have been a temptation to him to say, well, this doesn't seem to be the way in which the work should be done. It's not bearing fruit. Perhaps I ought to seek out a different methodology. Perhaps we should try liturgical dance. Maybe we should, uh, should get into popular music. Uh, maybe we should go on television and have talk shows. Maybe we should have a tract distribution. Maybe we should have a rock concert. Something different has to be tried. I find that this speaking is not particularly effective. God did not tell Paul to change his methods. The way had been slow. The results had been meager. And God said to Paul, keep on preaching. Keep on teaching. Why? Because God has chosen to bring men and women to Christ through the proclamation of his word. Paul talks about it in the 10th chapter of Romans, saying there's no faith without hearing, and there's no hearing without a proclamation of the word of God. The third thing God said to Paul was a repetition of what Jesus had said in the Great Commission, and I'm sure Paul understood it to be such. God said to him, I am with you. Did Paul ever find himself at times wondering if God really was with him? Oh, I, I think probably deep in his heart he never did. Paul knew that God was with him just like you and I know that God is with us. Jesus said, I am with you. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. If he said it, that's true. At the same time, I wonder if in his discouragement he didn't occasionally just occasionally, maybe only in a superficial way, begin to doubt it, just as we do. Ever find yourself trying to do what you think God wants you to do? Bear a witness in the office? Live morally? When faced with temptation? Any of the other things that we find so difficult, and it's so hard, you begin to say, is God really with me? Is it worth it all? Should I keep on this way? Should I just give up? Well then, hear what God said to Paul. God said, I am with you. After he had first of all said, don't be afraid, 
and keep on speaking. The fourth thing he said was particularly suited to Paul in his situation. God said, no one will attack you or harm you. That helped because earlier they had and they did. They had attacked him and they did hurt him and the same sort of trouble was brewing here. We read about it, as I said, in the later verses. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. They tried, but as we find out, they didn't succeed. Indeed, Gallio, as a wise administrator, recognized that this was not a matter for his own jurisdiction. It was a dispute among religious people, and so he threw the case out of court. And as it turned out, the people of the city actually turned on Sosthenes, the new synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court instead of Paul. So God honored his promise. But you know, I think of all the things that God said to Paul in this great vision, undoubtedly the most important and the most significant for this apostle to the Gentiles was the last. God said, I have many people in this city. What people? Well, it wasn't the ones to whom Paul had already spoken and who had believed because they weren't many. There were only a few. If God said, I have many people in this city, God, who alone is able to see the future and who determines it, was looking ahead, saying, by the preaching of the word through your ministry, I am yet going to bring many people to faith in Jesus Christ. And they're going to be my people. They're going to stand together as a church that bears a witness in this most corrupt city of the ancient world. And you know the effect this had on Paul? It's important to see that. We're told immediately after this, in verse 11, after Paul had received the vision, so, means therefore, it means because of what God had said, so, Paul stayed on for a year and a half teaching them the Word of God. Understand that that's different? He hadn't done that before. He'd moved from place to place. He'd spent a week here, three weeks there, a month there, but he moved on. As Soon as he had some converts, he left somebody with him and he moved on. But God had told him, don't be afraid. No one will hurt you. Keep on speaking. I have many people in the city. So Paul believed God and he stayed on and he kept on preaching and you know what happened? Many people believed and came to Jesus Christ. Moreover, it seems to me that the turning point that Paul experienced here really affected everything he did from this point on. The next great city he visits is Ephesus and he stays there two years. And then he is in Caesarea in prison, but he's two years there and eventually gets on to Rome and he's several years there. Paul isn't a gadfly anymore even though he recognizes that he still has the same call, that is to take the gospel throughout the Roman world. But it is as if he puts down roots and teaches in depth over a period of time in order that those who are one to Christ might be faithfully grounded in the Word. Now I know perfectly well that you can't take text like this, a vision spoken to Paul in a particular situation, and without any critical assessment whatsoever, just lift it up, carry it over, put it down, and apply it to ourselves. As if God 
would be saying to us, nobody will ever attack you, nobody will ever harm you, just keep on speaking, and there will be many people in the city. It isn't necessarily a word directly from God to our own situations. And yet I can't help but think if he's put you where he has put you, in your house, in your neighborhood, in your section of the city, if he's put us here, it's not because he doesn't have many people in the city, it's because he does. And our job is the same job that was given to Paul, which is to keep on, and to keep on keeping on, and not be afraid, and know that he is with us, and keep speaking. It may be in our day that we will see the fruit, much fruit, fruit that will last. It may be that we will not see it, but the fruit will come. I do notice, you see, that when the door of the synagogue closed on Paul, the next house down the block opened its door to him, and he went into the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God who undoubtedly believed. He is closing one door here, it's because he's opening one door there. If there's somebody here who is rejecting the gospel, it's because over here he has another person that is willing to receive it. Our challenge is to take that word. We don't know the hearts that he's prepared, but to take that word and to teach it and to share it and allow God to bless it, knowing that in his own time and for his own ends, he will most certainly bring fruit. Let us pray. Our Father, you said to Paul, I have many people in this city, your people, people that need to hear the word, and who, when they hear it, will believe. In Corinth, there were just three workers. At the beginning, there was only one. We are hundreds. How many people does it take to win a city? It just takes a few who are willing to speak boldly the gospel of justification through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.